This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode, joined by two of my colleagues. I have Rebecca Ford. Hi. And returning to join us again, Johanna Desta. Hello. You guys are the lucky conductors of this week's two interviews. Uh, first, we'll hear Johanna talking to Maude Apatow about her role in Euphoria, and then Rebecca will talk to Andrew Garfield about Under the Banner of Heaven. So let's start, Johanna, with you and Maude. You have been my kind of Euphoria guide uh, as someone who is uh, has, I think, the stomach to watch this show, which I still feel very anxious about. And when I was talking to you about who really had a standout role on this season, I think Maude was a really uh, obvious one for you. What made this such a good season for her? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of a slow burn for her character, but she really owns the finale. The spoiler alert, the the show ends on a play that she has secretly been writing the entire time. And it's this weird kind of meta play about her sister and all her friends, and it kind of torches the school down. Uh, So it's high, high drama. And she's really, really great as a maniacal theater kid. Is that something that uh, we saw the potential for her in previous seasons, or was this really her coming out as a powerful character and an actress? Yeah, you know, last season she was really on the back burner, and something that Maude told me is that when she signed on for the show, Sam told her, look, season Sam Levinson, the creator, uh, he told her that season one is just going to be kind of slow going, but season two is really where her character is going to shine, so she's kind of been lying, wait. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, that takes such patience, I think, as a young actor wanting to prove yourself to go through it a whole season knowing you have to wait. Yeah. But, you know, something that I didn't know before is that she had also starred in his film Assassination Nation. So she had worked with him before. So she kind of had that implicit trust in him that he was going to keep his word and really let her character shine in the second season. Yeah. What else did you guys talk about in the interview? Oh, we talked about all kinds of things. She had just gone to the Met Gala. So we talked about that. Um, we also talked about, I, I was so interested in the meta quality of her character this season and the fact that her father, Judd, has also written things uh, about his life and she's played meta versions of herself in his work. Um, and she talked a little bit about being inspired by that and how she's also writing something about her own life that she hopes to make someday. Um, yeah, which I think is really interesting. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear your interview with Maude Apatow, uh, but first let's hear a word from our sponsors. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hello! Hi! <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess... One quick question that I had. How are you? How was the Met Gala? You've been very busy and very glamorous. How are things? Oh my gosh, uh, the Met Gala was so scary, but so fun. It's so many weeks of buildup and anxiety about your outfit and your look. And then it sort of happened really quickly. And it was very fun. Once I got there, I was I could relax and have a yeah. good time. But yeah, it's scary. It's so scary. It seems it's like a lot of stairs. It seems like a very intimidating atmosphere and space. But you looked so great. I, I loved the look that you were wearing. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, obviously, I have so many questions about Euphoria, which was so huge in its second season. And you are incredible in it. I mean, the first season did really, really well. It was an enormous success. And then the second season just has built upon that. And for viewers who watch, they know that Lexi's second season, it's kind of where your storyline and your arc really jumps out. Um, I was curious, could you talk to me a little bit about when Sam let you know that season two was really going to be, you know, Lexi's time to shine? So I met Sam, uh, we made a movie together called Assassination Nation when I was a freshman in college. I first met him on Zoom in my dorm room and we really hit it off. And I thought the meeting went terribly, but I guess it went well. So I, I flew to audition uh, for him in person and we did that movie together. And I just, I think Sam is so smart and he's always been so supportive of me. It, it really means a lot. Like I, I was so nervous in this meeting and, and the audition too, but he really pushed me out of my comfort zone. That Assassination Nation audition lasted like 35 minutes, which is insanely long for an audition. He just let me go and go and improv it until we got it right. And yeah, he's just always, I don't know, he's always been very supportive of me. And I feel like he knows what I'm capable of. And so it sort of pushes me more than anyone I've worked with before. So then we did that movie together and I heard he was working on Euphoria, but I didn't really know any details about it. And then I auditioned, whatever, I got the part and he told me straight up right away, like season one is not where your arc is. It's going to be season two. So I knew that going into it. I love that he he was just up front with you and he had that plan for your character all along, which has got to be kind of exciting. Like that's a guarantee that you're definitely going to be in season two. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. <laughs> yeah. Unless I really screwed up season one. So. <laughs> He's like, scratch that. I don't know about Lexi anymore. Yeah. But just like diving back into the Lexi of it all, the season two of it all, her arc is really tremendous and it kind of starts with, you know, this her and Fezco, will they, won't they? And it's really surprising, but really heartwarming. 
And I've read that it was something that you suggested to Sam because you and Angus are just friends in real life. Tell me all about, you know, suggesting that to him and how that storyline came into play. Yeah, I mean, I just called Sam one day and we ended up talking on the phone for like three hours about different things that could happen in the season two arc. But we kind of like played around and named a bunch of different characters. And then when we started talking about Angus, it was clear that was that was <laughs> that was the <laughs> one. And then we were just cracking up, talking about how different conversations they could have. And I don't know. We just thought the idea was so funny. It's so it's so good. It's one <laughs> of those sweet, things, kind of <laughs> extremely yeah. sweet. It's just one of those things like when it started happening in the episode, I was watching it like, huh? And then I was immediately into it, like two thumbs up. Yes, I'm so <laughs> glad these two are talking and I'm so glad that it was carried over the course of the season. But so so you and Angus are friends in real life. Talk to me a bit about how like your friendship began and how it inspired that storyline. I mean, we're all very close friends in the cast. I think we got so lucky that we're all, I don't know, we're all the same age and going through a very similar experience together and we're so lucky that we all love and support each other as much as we do because it all can be very overwhelming sometimes. And so we just all got really close. I mean, we have a lot of time, you know, downtime in our trailers and we'll all sit around and talk. And so that's kind of how Angus and I became friends because we didn't have a lot of scenes together last season, but we or season one, but we we always were just hanging out outside. Like when we were shooting the carnival scenes, I remember we just pulled a bunch of all-nighters on set and we're just sitting together and cracking up and like going on the rides. And so we just became friends really quickly, all of us. Um, I mean, you said the word overwhelming, which I kind of want to circle back to because I imagine in so many senses, it's like the material of the show is a lot. You know, the fact that it's so huge is a lot. Like the work that you have to do as an actor is a lot. Talk to me a bit about, you know, what is overwhelming about the world of Euphoria? Yeah, I mean, season one, we didn't really know if anyone was going to watch the show. We just kind of hoped it was going to turn out well. And we didn't get to see much of it as we were shooting. So none of us had any idea what to expect. And then obviously when the show came out and so many people watched it, I guess like, yeah, there is some pressure coming back for a second season and, you know, people have high expectations of what it should be. And it's a lot of pressure sometimes, but I mean, the shots are so beautiful, but they're so beautiful because we have these cranes and crazy dolly tracks, like hundreds of feet of dolly tracks. And the shots are very complicated and take a while to set up. And so we end up shooting for eight and a half months, which is a pretty long shoot for eight episodes. Wow, so yeah. I think the amount of time sometimes you're, I don't know, when you're doing anything for that long, you're sort of, you're in the thick of it. And mm -hmm. it feels like that's, the only thing in the world and you want to do a good job so badly and so but overwhelming like it's never a, a super negative overwhelm it's always mm -hmm. positive like we're just running around and it just feels like fast-paced and we gotta go and but it's eight months of that so right. <laughs> after a while we're like oh shoot we're tired <laughs> but we're gonna keep going <laughs> yeah it's a lot it's a lot but I mean the the end result is really incredible I mean you're talking about some of these shots it's like unbelievable looking. Oh, always. And, and it's so, like sometimes rarely I'll be sitting there like 
this doesn't really need to have this crane. Like, is this really necessary? And then I see it, I'm like, oh yeah, 100%. This is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. It's all worth it in the end. Yeah. What is, what's one of the more like technically difficult scenes that you've had to do where it was the most like, you gotta hit your mark because the crane's coming here and Dolly here, like. There were a lot. So during the play scenes, there were like a couple just wonders backstage. So I'd run down the stairs and circle around and you just had to hit every single mark or the, or the, the scene was destroyed. So we, we ended up having to do it a bunch of times, but yeah, it's tricky. It's that one scene uh, backstage. At the end, I put a wig on and say, I love the theater. But I remember we did the scene like so many times, but we got it at the end and it was so worth it. So yeah. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that scene. I knew exactly what scene you were talking about. And I have so many questions about like the big theater finale that I want to circle back to because it's just many, many, many questions. <laughs> um, before I ask about the theater um, of it all, like the, the two episodes over the end, I loved there's that meta moment in the third episode when we're kind of getting into Lexi's story a bit more. And she starts talking about herself as the observer. And we see Lexi observing everything as like the movie of her life. And all her friends are actors. Her parents are actors. And there's this really fun meta quality to it because you're also an actor and and you're on a set and there's just so many layers to it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that scene in particular and how you connected to it or related to it. Yeah, definitely. Um well, in that scene, when I walk off stage, a ton of the crew members are in it. So the first woman that I meet when I'm walking out is Sam's assistant, Marlise. And then our actual AD, Sally, was who Amazing. I was talking to in all those scenes. And I sat next to our um, script supervisor, Gurky. So we all had a lot of fun that day because we all got to act in it. And it was really, it was really special. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think that was a really important I mean, it sort of introduces us to the whole play in the end. Um, I'm glad they sort of explained it because I always felt like that's how Lexi felt watching everyone else. Like she always was watching and never really spoke up for herself. And so, I don't know, it's, it's like sort of a quietness, but there is so much going on in her head. And I think that's sort of the first time that we see that, that she's not just sitting there quietly like she's she's (laughs) thinking about it all so much but it sort of manifests Mm -hmm. in this quiet way like her exterior is so different than what's going on inside but I thought the sequence turned out really cool that's another one of those big wonders that I was talking about (laughs) yeah totally it's it's very complicated to watch and think about like how it's just going the entire time well now I want to ask about Lexi's play, which is really, really extraordinary. And I've read and you've talked about the fact that it was inspired by you in high school. For those who don't know, can you talk a little bit about like the play that inspired this scene? Yes. So in high school, I, I mean, I did theater all through high school and middle school and my whole life. And so when I was a senior in high school, we had a production that we as a senior class wrote and directed and produced and I was the producer so I was kind of in charge with two other girls and for some reason I think it was just a mix of 
how scared I was about graduating and leaving home and just saying goodbye to all my friends that I channeled all of that energy into making the show perfect. But it was, it, it was just crazy. Like I don't know what happened, but I took it so, so seriously. And I think mm -hmm. it was for the best because apparently it was the best show in years and <laughs> still is. But I, uh, of course. no, I definitely channeled all of that weird energy into the show and became sort of this tyrant. Yeah. And I talked to Sam about that when we were kicking around the ideas for the play. And that sort of makes sense because I, I think, I mean, Lexi and I are very similar in that way. I think I'm pretty shy too, and but I really care. And so when I'm stressed, I think that sometimes manifests in strange ways, but it's the same thing as Lexi. Like she just wants everything to work out perfectly. Mm -hmm. And everything in her life is falling apart around her, like to way more of an true. extreme than mine was. Like you, like Rue and, and her sister, and it's just, what do you do with all of that? And she just mm -hmm. puts it into the show and it manifests as this sort of aggression, but also I think right. it's like a healthy way of processing all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it turns out to be like a weirdly cathartic night for a lot of people in the show. <laughs> yeah. What was your favorite part about the play that Lexi puts on? So Austin Abrams, who plays Ethan in the show, and I worked a lot together. And he's he's an amazing actor. And he did all of the, like, he played Suze and the photographer. Mm -hmm. And each part that he played, he put 100% into it and was so funny. And it was so amazing getting to work with him. I, I really think he's so, so talented. And we just had a lot of fun because both of us grew up doing theater and hadn't done it in years. And so we were blocking all these scenes like we were doing a play and then we'd get on stage and perform to a real audience of like 250 people so we were just having the best time ever and cracking up and like I'm trying to think of my favorite part I mean the dance number obviously I'm not in that part so but watch yeah. that's Austin he's just such a badass and he worked so hard and it all paid off and looked amazing he's just great so we had a lot of fun together and obviously all of the girls mm -hmm. but we had the best time it was just a blast yeah he's so great that dance number is unbelievable but i will say what really makes it sing is all the reaction shots of lexi like watching it so intensely <laughs> like mouthing along just to the beats <laughs> and like the lyrics and stuff i i loved all those parts but that is totally the centerpiece of the like, show. We shot like a reaction for 30 minutes. So they did the dance and I had to just react and I knew the camera was on me. <laughs> it was, it, that was a rough one. 30 minutes. Me, uh... <laughs> the, the gesture that you are doing cannot be shown, but it, for anyone who's seen it, it's the gesture that Lucky does. <laughs> and should not be described. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 30 minutes. That's that's a long time. But kudos to you for <laughs> acting through it. Well, something I'm curious about as well, obviously the show is shot on film. Like, does that add a different layer of pressure? Or does it feel the same? Talk to me a bit about that. I kind of thought maybe beforehand that it would, but it didn't at all. I think it felt very similar, except for the fact that we didn't know what it was going to look like. But mm -hmm. we could see on the monitor sort of an idea of it. And yeah, I don't... I mean, you only have, I think it's 10 or 12 minutes 
per roll, but it sort of makes you want to focus a little bit more and get it done. And yeah, I think if anything, it was kind of more helpful. Just lit a fire under your ass a little bit. <laughs> right, because you know that that clock is sticking. So, oh yeah, so you're acting for 30 minutes, but with a roll change, maybe oh, yeah. two, two uh, roll yeah. changes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I tip my hat to you. Well, something that I was curious about as you were talking about your your past theater life and, and playing Lexi in the theater, are you interested in theater in the future? Are you interested in Broadway and, and going back into that world? Yeah, I would love to do that more than anything. I mean, the first play that I did in, I think I was in second grade. I don't know if it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I don't know which order it was, but I just knew that was what I was meant to do always. People ask me, because of your family, did you feel pressured to be in this industry? And I just knew immediately, like that's where I felt the most happy and free. And I don't know, I just, I love doing theater more than anything. So hopefully one day I get to do that again. Oh, I would you love could... to. If you could select anything, I mean, barring, I don't know if you're superstitious, but putting it out to the universe, like what, what are some of your favorite plays or what's something that you would like love to be in? My senior year of high school, I was in cabaret and I was Sally Bowles in cabaret and it was the best. I just had the best time doing that. And I got to see uh, Emma Stone do it in New York mm-hmm. before I did it. And I really look up to her. I think she's so amazing and... I think her career has been so perfect. And so I really look up to her and I saw her and she blew my mind. She was so, so great. And it was so powerful. And since then I was like, I want to do that. And then I did get to do it in high school. So maybe one day I'll get to do it again. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Well, you mentioned your family very briefly. Who would you say is the biggest Euphoria fan in the Apatow family? I think my dad, my dad loves it, which is kind of weird. I didn't expect him to like it as much as he does, but he really was moved by it. And my sister obviously loves it and Mm. her friends love it, which is really, really cute. Yeah. Well, that's going to be cool to be, because she's your younger sister. So if you're doing something cool, it's like nice for the younger siblings to enjoy it and like validate it. I know. I feel cool because her friends are, uh, her friends are intimidating. My sister is, she's younger than me, but she's definitely cooler than me. So <laughs> all of her friends come around. They're like, hey, Maud, want to tell us any secrets? I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta sip my lips, but thank you for watching. <laughs> I love that. Well, it's so, that's, that's really fun. I, I guess Lexi is also, for a parent, that's like a character that you can watch, whereas some of the other characters are really gone through some things. So it might right. be harder for a parent to watch. But yeah, I, I, I love that your dad is the biggest fan of it. He definitely way. is. I always think, though, with, I, I mean, I should have said this earlier, but Lexi comes off like the nice one, but I think she actually is similar to the rest of the girls. Like you see this anger and I don't know, she's definitely got issues too. And I feel like we got to see that this season, that she seems like the sweet one, but I'm like, is she even that sweet? (laughs) (laughs) What she did was, (laughs) I love love the hushed tone for, um, but I mean, what she does with the play is, 
It's a pretty vicious move. So yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> You're just like nodding. Yeah, I'm nodding. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I forgot we're in the podcast format. <laughs> <laughs> but people feel it. They can feel the nod. Of well, course. that's actually on the flip side of that. Something I am curious about that that I just thought of is, you know, she's writing something that's very meta and autobiographical, and then you mentioned your family, like your father has done stuff that's autobiographical and you've acted in it. So you've, you've experienced playing characters that have this meta layer to them. Are you ever interested in writing something autobiographical or doing something meta, some other project? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer too. And I think there's definitely a line. So Lexi didn't realize that Maybe you don't make it that obvious, but obviously it's it's so hard not to write from your life and about people you know and experiences you've had. So hopefully one day I'll be able to do that in a way that doesn't hurt people too much. <laughs> I think I think you've earned the right to write something autobiographical. <laughs> but I'm I'm dying to see it, whatever it is. Would it be like a film? Would it be a series? Do you do you know yet? Is it too soon to say? I think it's too soon to say, but I've, I've got something in, in the works. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'm dying to know more. Please tell me first <laughs> okay. before, you know, your friends and the other people in your life, because I am dying to know, but that's, that's very exciting. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, actually I did want to ask, because I love the heart to heart scene between you and Zendaya in the final episode. Talk to me a bit about prepping that and doing that scene with her because it's really, really special what the both of you do. Yeah, that last scene with Zendaya, I mean, we didn't get the last script. It was sort of like, that was a very top secret script, I think, because at that point they didn't know who was going to die, what we were talking about earlier. And I don't know, it was very secretive. And so I got that scene pretty close to when we shot it, but I definitely realized that I don't know, from season one, like it, the entire arc made sense. That scene, it's this friendship that's falling apart, coming back together. And it was so well written by Sam. I remember doing it uh, the first time with Sunday and it just like instantly felt like we both understood it so much. And, you know, we've been shooting for years and we've had all these really tough scenes together. And it was so nice to have this heart to heart and have this sweet scene together. And at this point too, like Zendaya and I know are really close and we just, because it was so well written, it just sort of happened really well. It was like the dream scene. I don't know. I think Sam did such a good job and we just got it right away, but it felt really good. (laughs) That all comes through, yeah. No, it's just, I mean, I feel like it's a dream for an actor to have a scene that's written that way. And obviously a partner like Zendaya, who's such an amazing actress, it just sort of it was really special. That was, that was my favorite scene to shoot the whole season. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, so now, Rebecca, we're going to hear your conversation with Andrew Garfield. Uh, he has been so incredibly busy. We were talking about him all through Oscar season for his role in Tick, Tick, Boom, and now he's right back at it on Under the Banner of Heaven. And as soon as you were done doing this interview, you basically said to me, like, oh, my God, I love Andrew Garfield so much. I really feel like I've gotten to spend a lot of quality time with Andrew Garfield because he's been in award season for, like, an entire year now. So. <laughs> but it was interesting to, um, you know, do this interview. We did it over Zoom because he's... He's actually not working right now. He's like hiding out in Malibu and he seems so much calmer that I sort of started the interview being like, are you okay? He's like, I'm just relaxed. You haven't seen me relaxed. So it's kind of nice to see him, you know, finally getting a break after this like crazy year and a half he's had. I'm so happy for I'm genuinely happy for him. Like not that I, you know, feeling sorry for movie stars is a funny thing, but like he must be exhausted. <laughs> Yeah, I think he is. But he really seemed to love this role and this project. So he was excited to talk about it, even though he seemed totally burned out. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about Under the Banner of Heaven on this show before and, uh, and how really intense it is and his role as this Mormon detective investigating this really horrifying murder and the personal revelations it brings about for him. So I assume you guys got into some detail about that in the interview. Yeah, I mean, he's, he talked a lot about how he felt a responsibility to learn as much as he could about the Mormon community community and and sort of understanding why someone particularly a white man would be uh, which he pointed out I did not but would hmm. be attracted to this community in this and sort of the support uh, you get within it so I think he he felt a lot of responsibility to represent the community right and especially um, talk to ex-mormons about you know how they sort of uh, lost their faith in it because that's sort of what the detective goes through as he investigates this case. And that's a group of people that includes the show's writer, Dustin Lance Black, which I assume is a, a, a major resource for him. Yeah, it sounds like um, Dustin Lance Black connected him to a lot of his you know, friends who had sort of gone through similar experiences. Uh, well, let's listen to your conversation with Under the Banner of Heaven's Andrew Garfield. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well, what kind of answer would you like? Would you would you like a No, you seem a little are you tired? What's going on? Oh wow, thanks a lot. <laughs> I um, I'm very, very relaxed. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Maybe you're just not used to seeing a relaxed person. No, I, I'm just very relaxed. I think we, we yeah, we lost each other in the middle of all the the pressy campaigny stuff, which just takes on a different I don't know, the energy is just very different and then here yeah, I don't know. It's nice. I've I've just been a, in life, so you, you're just kind of catching me midlife. Well, I hope you're enjoying life. Uh, but I did want to talk about Under the Banner of Heaven because I think your performance is so wonderful in the show. I just found so engrossing. So maybe we can start with how did this project first come into your orbit and, and what was sort of your first impression of it? So, yes, yeah, so I, I read Krakauer's book when it first came out and I found it just very, very interesting how he so elegantly and fascinatingly connected the founding of a kind of newish religion of Mormonism, the inception of this new religion 
with um, this terribly gruesome ego-driven murder that occurred in the Mormon community in the 80s. The, the writing is just kind of so marvelous and his way of connecting the these unseen threads, these previously unseen threads, was just astounding to me. And so, of course, like everyone else who makes movies and theater and TV, I thought, well, who's going to get the rights and who's going to try to adapt this impossible book? And I was excited to see that Imagine had the rights and that Dustin Lance Black was looking to to do it, him being an ex-Mormon himself and having such a personal connection to the material. And then I just didn't think about it for a while until um, Lance called me and said, I, I think I've cracked it, this book, and I would love you to, I'm, I've created a fictional character that has been the kind of the um, the breakthrough for me in terms of making the story thrilling and narratively, I don't know, exciting and also emotional to give a kind of emotional focal point, a kind of solid center in the middle of this very multi-dimensional uh, multi-narrative story and I would love you to have a, have a read and I, I just found you know his writing so riveting and so honoring of Krakauer's book but also honoring of his own personal experiences in this faith and I don't know it it, it made it he made a, a great tv show out of it and I thought well like oh gosh this is a heavy this is a heavy duty material and a heavy duty subject and we'll be in Calgary for six months but I couldn't say no. It was one of those annoying projects where I, 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 I kind of said, well, I, this is a subject matter that interests me so much. And I think it has so much potential healing and enlightenment for an audience in terms of religion, in terms of spirituality, in terms of, or lack thereof with, you know, spiritual, you know, a kind of, uh, our worst impulse is masquerading as um, somehow being godly. And, you know, it's a, it's a show and story about being susceptible to extremism and fundamentalism. And obviously we're in a moment right now where we're all incredibly susceptible to our own echo chambers and to a kind of a narrow view, kind of shallow view of the world and of ourselves and of what life is about, a kind of um, weirdly materialistic uh, view of the world. And, and, and I think uh, in times of such uncertainty and collapse, it is tempting for us to kind of fall prey to simple answers, which is obviously a big part of what this show is about. And I, so it, it all just was ringing the right bells for the time we're in and and what I wanted to express as a as an actor and the people I wanted to work with, it was just a very, very, it was a no-brainer, as it were. And so your character, who's the detective that's sort of investigating this case, which is a real case, but your character is obviously fictionalized, as you mentioned, how much did you feel like you needed to learn about Mormon religion and, and this community? And, and did you find anything that really surprised you as you're preparing? Yeah, I mean, I had to, <laughs> I had to feel like I was Mormon. That's what that was what the main part of the job was, because then once we were filming, the main journey that my character Jeb Pyrie goes on is that his foundations get slowly taken apart 
and his foundations are based in his church, are based in the container that he was born into and brought up in, which is the Mormon church. So, of course, my responsibility to playing the part was to, I don't know, kind of um, simulate that for myself, create a cellular body relationship to a set of beliefs and rules and ideas that I was so fully invested in and find where that is in my life, find where that is in my imagination and so that I could show up on a day-to-day basis and allow my foundations to get rocked and cracked in a, in a way that was subtle and internal and truthful. So I, so I got to study what, what it was to be a Mormon and I got to try to fall in love with that religion. And there was a lot to fall in love with, like with any organized religion, there's, there's, such, there's such beauty. And, and in Mormonism, what I found quite beautiful was, and I think you, could, you probably would find this in most religions, is a, a true sense of community. You know, a kind of uh, an access to a, a wider family that feels inclusive to white people, and um, uh, and uh, supportive to white people and men particularly, and uh, all of the, the the things that I am, and um, you know, uh, empowering to white men and. Um, uh, it, you know, so I think if I could, I had to figure out a way of, but, 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 but Jeb is a modern Mormon in this. And this is another thing that I found really kind of beautiful and interesting. And a lot of the Mormons that I, that I met while I was doing my research around the subject, I visited Salt Lake City in Utah and I, you know, spoke to a lot of Dustin Lance Black's friends and lots of incredible people, ex-Mormons, police officer Mormons. Cop Mormons who who used to be Mormons who had a crisis of faith, you know, I, I I got a whole kind of array of experiences from this community, and I think where Jeb lives is in a very modern state, and he has an equal in his wife, and that that was thankfully like a part of the character that. I I think it was it would probably be much harder for Sam Worthington and Wyatt Russell and the the rest of the Lafferty brothers, um, the actors who play the Lafferty's, to to get into a kind of misogynistic female subjugating mindset because they're all just decent guys. So, but for me, I got to play a more modern version of what it is to be a Mormon and um, and someone who's obviously sensitive enough to have an openness to his faith and his belief system being questioned. I think that is a rare quality for someone who's so rooted and uh, enmeshed with their faith to be curious enough, I suppose, imaginative enough and honest enough to be able to, to face questioning something that is so, um, brutalizing to their own lives. That's so, that is so going to be so violent in terms of the up, upheaval it's going to do to to his own life that that is a quality that i admire in anyone someone who's willing to have their minds changed and have their hearts changed if it means an illusion is lifted and you start to see more reality and that's what that's the the journey that jeb pyrie goes on and i find it and having spoken to a bunch of people who have been through that very experience those were the people that i felt like i had to represent the um the ex mormons or or mm. any 
X anything, you know, people who were raised in a certain way who realized that that this way was fundamentally um, dangerous. So, so, so I met a lot of a lot of people who had been through this experience, and it enhanced my sense of responsibility, and the kind of it put the flesh on the bone, I suppose, for for Jeb and for my passion in wanting to honor Jeb and all the people that Jeb represents. As you say, this character really goes on this journey, and I'm curious if it was challenging to shoot that in a television show. I know most shows sort of shoot out of order and, you know, you have to go back and forth in his emotional state. Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, it's tricky because it's subtle, you know. It's not, he doesn't have the big speech and the big whatever, you know, there's not, he's a very ordinary dude, you know, and I and I think that was one one of the things that was appealing to me about playing the character is that he, how do I express a lot with not a lot? You know, that, that, that felt very interesting to me. Having, of course, just come from playing a very expressive musical theater writer who is all pure expression all the time, wearing his heart on his sleeve constantly. I felt excited to be challenged by a kind of more internal process and trusting that things would be expressed if I thought and felt them without having to show them. And without um, having to, you know, Jonathan Larson kind of, you know, thrust it down everyone's throats all the time. (laughs) Um, So it was really interesting to jump back and forth because it's so incremental, you know, and and that's the obviously the beauty of long form storytelling, which I haven't ever done. I've never done a miniseries in this way and been able to plot and kind of deliver an experiential journey, a slow burn for a character in that way over the course of seven hour long episodes. It was incredibly privileged that I got to do that. But yeah, it was, it was tricky because it was so, it's just, it's mostly just little, little pieces of dust crumbling from his foundations every moment. How much time did you have after Tick, Tick, Boom before this started up? I finished Tick, Tick, Boom end of 2020, I want to say. Where are we? 2022? Yeah, end mm-hmm. of 2020. And then I went in the beginning of 2021 and visited a friend in Atlanta and had to make a movie there that I'm now allowed to talk about, but I'm still oh, yes, weird, you can. <laughs> kind of like weirdly like PTSD about like not talking about a thing that people know I'm now in. Um, <laughs> so I went and did the, the Spider-Man. Is visiting a friend just the code word you use for shooting Spider-Man for like two years? <laughs> that was what Lin-Manuel Miranda would always reference when he would be like, so where, where are you, what, what are you doing after this, buddy? I'm like, oh, I've got to go and visit a friend in Atlanta. And he was like, uh-huh. And I was like, no, I'm literally visiting a friend. And I was visiting a friend, but that wasn't the primary reason. Oh, that friend wasn't Tobey Maguire. <laughs> no, but he, you know, but he's a friend that was also happened to be there. So now that the show's been out, do you pay attention to reactions and reviews when something like this comes out and really becomes a, a point of conversation? I I have a, you know, like every creative person that has to deal with that, I have a very complex relationship with it. And I always have, and I probably always will. I hope I don't. But I I think the my intention always is to, first and foremost, keep my own counsel with how I feel a thing has turned out a project. And when I say keep my own counsel, I also mean me and a few of my closest kind of creative people. 
And, um, and I, I try and make that the primary kind of relationship. But then, of course, it's hard not to look. And, and also with this, I was very curious because it's such a big show. And, and, and Dustin Lance Black had, su- has, had created something so sprawling and ambitious and multi-narrative. And, and I was incredibly curious and excited to see the other parts of the story that I wasn't involved in, like the, the Brenda Lafferty strand and the Joseph Smith Brigham Young strand and i was just excited so and then in terms of people's response to it because obviously you know i love the book and I love, a lot of people have a relationship with that book and and then there of course there's a you know, there's the mormon community and then there's the ex-mormon community and then there's just a, a, a general true crime watching tv public so is that you know there's going to be a lot of we're going to have a, sh- a smorgasbord of, of responses and that everyone's coming from their own realities so to me, if I can be objective and, and distance anything, per, like take my own personal need for people to like my work out of the equation, then it just becomes interesting to see how people respond to the same piece of art, the same story and how their own experiences shape that response. So yeah, I, I, I have, and the short answer is, yeah, I've been curious, so I looked. But you're not on social media. You're just a... Not officially. A, I, I'm, a cre- a I'm a creep. I'm a creep. I creep around. I, I kind of just skulk in the backgrounds, just watching other people engage in in uh, in, a, in this dangerous uh, wild west of virtual zero consequence reality. I find that interesting too. But yeah, I'm I'm not um, strong enough to engage. You're much better off, I would say, than those. Yeah, I know, and, and, and I know that's a privileged position as well. You know, I think a lot of People rely on it for work and for life, and and I, I fully respect that. I I I can't. Yeah, I'm lucky that I don't. Right now, never say never. Need to participate. So you were in Oscar season, as I was, you know, and that is quite a circus and a long few months with your films, and now. You know, you've had the show come out and and now we're in the conversations of Emmy season. And, and I'm cu- not a lot of people have to do those back to back. So I'm curious for you, what's sort of your perspective on that long journey that you have to participate in if your show or film is a part of that conversation? You know, it's it's a very, very lovely thing to make things that people like. And it's something that I just feel incredibly lucky that when I'm invited to those parties that I'm, I'm, and if I'm proud of the work and if I feel like it, the work represents me and my longings here to, that I want to express while I'm alive, like Tick Tick Boom does, like Under the Banner of Heaven does. And, you know, even like my small participation in the Spider-Man film does. I, I look at those those pieces of work and I go, yeah, I'm that's that's this is this is a lot of a sincere expression of what I want to express. Um and it's, it's never going to be complete and it's never going to be perfect. I'm never going to it's never going to be the, the kind of flawless thing that I want it to be. But to, for, to to have that be received in the way that that you're talking about is is quite humbling really. And I, I don't take it for granted and I, I, I appreciate it deeply because 
I don't know. It's encouraging. It's encouragement. And, and it's, it's acceptance from our community. It's acceptance from our peers. It's also a responsibility, I think. I think when, and I think about this a lot, and I've been thinking about it since, because I've had some time off and it's been great to just be able to, you know, reflect on this very question in this whole period of time is, well, what are you going to do with it? You know, what are you going to do with the attention that you're given? And that's a very liberating question for me because I want to make it about something bigger. I always want to take that, whatever that attention and whatever that energy is and I keto it towards something that is bigger than myself and something that is about what we're all doing here, like illuminating what we're all doing here on this, on this floating rock in the cosmos. I think that if we can keep our attention trained on that kind of meta perspective, then I, I think we, we, we will be in better shape and in good shape. And I think as storytellers and as artists, that's what our job is, is to throw up a frame and, and direct attention or give opportunity for our attention to be directed towards spiritual matters, matters of life and death, matters of meaning and meaninglessness, matters of love and relationship and existential questions. So uh, I, that, 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 that for me is, 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 is my ultimate desire. And I think being a part of these conversations in terms of what you, what you, the, the question you're asking only, only helps bring more attention to, 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 to stuff which may be more important. And you mentioned having some time off, and I know there was a story about how you plan to just take a little time after being so busy for the last couple of years. And I'm curious, how does that time let you sort of decide what's next? Do you have an idea about where you go from here? I think that's the beauty of it is, and what we forget, I think, maybe what I forget, I'll speak for myself, is, I don't know, I think we're we're all somewhat addicted to work and there's a kind of not never enoughness Mm -hmm. that we feel a kind of i don't know this post-industrialist psyche of well you're only as value as however many units you produce um this kind of modern times notion that i think is a real missing of the mark in terms of our collective psyche i have nothing wrong with working hard like i love working hard but i i think in order to do it in a, in a way that is soulful and effective, we, we have to be coming from a full cup. I speak to my, me and my brother speak about this all the time because we have the same disease in the sense that we, we both are just, a, just so identified with our work and he's a doctor and he's the kind of doctor you want looking after you because he will stay for three hours longer than he's supposed to. But then we, we both talk about this and we, we're like, well, how do we how do we come from an authentic place? How do we come from a place of abundance rather than a place of scarcity so that we can be actually incredibly effective at what we do? And it's not just a kind of series of burnouts because that's no way to live a life. I think there's a whole other kind of more receptive aspect of living that I need to be able to do in order to come back and create, you know? And so, so, so right now I think it's, it's a real lot a challenging allowing of of one's myself to to not know and that feels like a very vulnerable place to be because i think we're taught that we always have to have some kind of knowing about where we're supposed to be walking and how we're supposed to be living 
But then once I think you fall into the not knowing and you allow yourself to be in the not knowing, that's when deeper images come. That's when deeper ideas come and something more sincere might emerge. I, I've been reading um, Thoreau and, and, and Walden Pond, you know, you know, just kind of like his, his year just sitting in that one and walking that one patch of land, you know, and I've been reading John O'Donohue and some David White and, you know, these kind of nature philosophers, kind of spiritualists. <clears throat> and it's been kind of enhancing my my rest time and kind of reminding me that there's no there's nowhere to be like that 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 we all belong we all belong here whether or not we're making good TV. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're we're all worthy of the air we breathe. We're all we all belong on this planet. We all belong to each other and belong to ourselves and we don't have to be constantly proving our worth. And I think maybe in our twenties that is a kind of um, an energy and a kind of archetypal, you know, initiatory phase of we have to plant off. We feel a need to plant our flag and to let the world know that we are here and this is what we're about. And um, to like say our name loud and, and say this is who we are. And maybe, I don't know, maybe as the metabolism slows down and, you know, I definitely feel it in my 30s where I'm like, oh, no, I... I and also, you know, with the experience, when when you start to experience more loss and, and realizing that this is all finite, I think it can do one of two things. It can either rut, like create a kind of stress-induced panic and rush, a la Jonathan Larson, or it can make everything, it can make you slow down and, and create more presence. And I oscillate between those two things. Like I can get into both of those kind of states of being where I'm like, I've got to get it all done quicker and quicker and more and bigger and it's never enough. And, and but then if I, if I, yeah, this period of time has been a really wonderful kind of slowing down and a kind of um, a reconnection with the ordinary and the kind of simple rhythm of just being here. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with a regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, where you can find more coverage of Euphoria and Under the Banner of Heaven. You can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich, Rebecca, Becca M. Ford, and Johanna at Johanna Desta. Also, please sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7180. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux-European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.